these two precious people said, Kent, we just want to thank you so much for making this possible. They said the amount of the initial gift far exceeds anything that we ever thought that we could give to an institution that means so much to us. Welcome back to One Visit Away with your host, Kevin Fitzpatrick. This show focuses on true stories of philanthropy in order to understand what it takes to succeed in major gift fundraising. Listen to these stories and you'll realize you're just one visit away from a transformational experience for your benefactors and your organization. Did you know that, according to research, only about one-third of the prospects fundraisers like you get thrown on their caseloads are truly qualified? And even fewer are actually ready for your outreach. Think about that. If you're like most, two-thirds of the leads you've been getting are not really qualified to be on your list. Sure, they might have given in the past and their wealth screen ratings might be high, but if they won't accept your outreach, what good is all that research anyway, right? It's a serious problem, but there is a solution. And you can find it in Greg Warner's book titled Engagement Fundraising, which you can get right now at no cost whatsoever at imarketsmart.com forward slash free book. That's right. You can learn how hundreds of organizations and thousands of fundraisers are succeeding in today's era of fundraising climate change by grabbing your free digital copy or audiobook version of Greg's very popular book today. Get it now. 100% free. Engagement fundraising at imarketsmart.com forward slash free book. That's imarketsmart.com forward slash free book. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to One Visit Away. I hope you are having a great uh, week. And if you are enjoying the podcast, as always, please go leave a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It helps tremendously in getting the word out about the show. My guest today is a published author, popular presenter, effective consultant, and insightful thought leader. His purpose in life is to equip, inspire, and encourage. Kent equips leaders internationally through keynotes, retreats, consulting, writing, and his signature Asking Academy. Kent is passionate about excellence in fundraising. Most importantly, Kent is the husband of one, father of three, and grandfather of nine. Today, Kent shares a few firsthand experiences from his robust career in fundraising. I'm pleased to introduce my friend, America's Asking Coach, Kent Stroman. Well, welcome to One Visit Away, Kent. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, it's great to be with you, Kevin. So Kent, everybody, I heard him on uh, Roy Jones and Andrew Olson's podcast, um, and I was just super impressed with Kent. Not only does he have an excellent voice for radio, but we've also determined he's got a face for radio as well. But he's he's just one of the he's one of those people you just listen to him talk for two minutes and you know he's the real deal. And he's been in this uh, business for a long time and he's got some incredible stories to share. But before we do that, could you tell everybody just a little bit about yourself, Kent, and what, what you've done in your career? Yeah. Just a general overview. Yeah, sure. So um, um, I graduated from college with absolutely no idea of what I was going to do with my life. And and thankfully, um, I had some divine guidance along the way. Um, I My background is finance. And huh. I ended up in um, actually initially on the, on the uh, faculty at a small Christian liberal arts college. And moved quickly into administration, eventually became vice president for business Mm. before I call it going dark and uh, moving into the uh, development side of the house. But um, I so I I tell people I'm a recovering accountant. (laughs) So for those who think that you you can't be an accountant and still have significance in life, um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm just, you know, I, my, my background in finance is very helpful to the clients that I serve. And yeah. uh, it, it really kind of helps complete the picture, uh, bringing the expense side in uh, together on the same platform with, with the income side of it. And so anyhow, I was in higher ed for 25 years. And then um, uh, actually 20 years ago, started the consulting firm. And now I have an opportunity to work with all kinds of organizations that I never dreamed existed. 
And uh, Kevin, yeah. I'm having the time of my life. That is so awesome. So, so how long was it? How long were you doing fundraising in uh, the higher education system? So, I want to say about seven years, something like that. Okay. Um, okay. However, I should say that um, for through a variety of means, I had exposure and involvement in fundraising long before I had responsibility for it. And so, I mean, I was learning things that were going to serve me well when I didn't even know it. Um, Yes. Yeah. And now, okay, that's an interesting concept (laughs) right there. So one of the things I think you will be able to, you know, have a lot of experience with is this idea of just like basically any experience that you have in your life, whether it's travel or working somewhere or reading a book, all of that, even though you might not see it right now, at some point that information is going to be valuable when you're sitting down with somebody and they mention how they're going on a trip to Montana this summer, <laughs> or, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, well, yeah, have you? <laughs> so, so case in point, and um, <clears throat> I was, let's see, uh, once upon a time, I was interviewing uh, a. Um, uh, a bishop in the Roman Catholic church. Yeah. And I mean, to even be in the room with a bishop for this long lost country kid was a kind of a big deal. Mm-hmm. And uh, so anyway, I mean, we, we covered the material that I came for in the process of this, of this exchange, something popped up that we both had in common. And so, I mean, I, I wanted to jump on it immediately, but, you know, you save that stuff for after you finish the agenda, right? And yeah, yeah. so so um, after we finish our business, I said, I said well, Bishop, um, I just noted that, that you and I have something common in our background. He said, well, what's that? And I said, manure spreading. <laughs> and so he had mentioned that when he was in his undergraduate, he wasn't a theology major. He was in, in the agriculture program and the university had a, a campus farm and he was working on the farm and part of it involved cleaning the cow pens and, and spreading manure. Well, uh, for, for most of my growing up years, um, it was after my dad had started his own company, which was manure spreading. And so um, it was the, uh, it was the profits from manure spreading that helped pay my way into college. But more important than that is, um, you know, I tell people that I earned a master's degree in business by riding in the passenger seat of my dad's pickup. And so, you know, when you say um, what prepares you for a life in fundraising, just about anything can, but not everything does. Yeah, that, that is, that is so true. And I think about, um, you know, sometimes even though I'm I'm in my late twenties, I feel like an old man because I I reminisce of the days when. Uh, so, so I grew up in New Orleans, and my my dad would take my brother and I fishing uh, at this place called the Point. It's a man made peninsula, just jutting out into Lake Pontchartrain, and he would drop me. And, <laughs> he would drop me and my brother off there at like six o'clock in the morning when we were maybe 10 and 12 years old. And the, the people who were out there fishing, uh, those summer days were, were all characters of one or another. And, and just the, the different types of people I was exposed to from like early on in my life, uh, of just so many different backgrounds, I think in a lot of ways helped prepare me Mm to be able to talk to just about anyone. Um, and I think the reason I said I reminisce about things like that is I feel like there are less and less characters that children can be exposed to mm. because nowadays there's just like, we just see so much bad stuff all around. It's like you would never put a kid in those situations <laughs> today. People probably still do in New Orleans, but uh <laughs> I don't know. Uh, that's just a manure spreading or <laughs> hanging out at the point, uh, yeah. picking up, picking up fish is uh, all important parts of a fundraiser's development. Oh yeah. Well, you know, you, you, th- you think about the best things that come out of the worst things, right? 
so as you're talking about the point, it reminded me of how I learned to talk to people who weren't familiar with me and weren't my peers. And this was in junior high. And so I didn't realize at the time what a big favor my dad did me. But I made the mistake, Kevin, one time of bringing home a mid-semester report card that had a D on it. And um, um, I don't know about the family that you grew up in, but I'll tell you the family I grew up in, that wasn't within the parameters of acceptable. (laughs) And so... um, not that I ever thought that it was, but it was saying that, that my dad really clarified it for me. <laughs> but, but here's what's even worse. I mean, this was, I think maybe this is the only D I've ever gotten in my life. Fortunately, it was midterm. It was the, the class that I got my D in was Boys Glee Club. <laughs> I mean, how bad do you have to be to get a D in Glee Club? <laughs> Well, I, there's more to that story, which I won't tell you. But, but um, so anyhow, um, so my dad, he says, okay, Kent, here's what we're going to do. Now, he had an inclusive language, right? Here's what we're going to do, which meant this is what you're going to do. And uh, he said, he said, um, this was like on a Tuesday or Wednesday. He said, by the end of the week, I'm going to ask you a question and I want to be able to want you to be able to answer this for every class that you're in. Hmm. And the, um, the first question is going to be, what would your grade be today? And the second question is, if it's not an A or a B, what will, what will have to take place for you to get it up to an A or B by the, by the end of the semester? So, um, man, the, as awful as that sound, it was way better than the alternative, which was imminent death. Um, <laughs> so anyhow, here's, here's what I didn't realize that came out of that. Um, it forced me to have one-on-one conversations with my teachers, all of whom were adults. They were educated adults. And my circle of educated adults that I would have a one-on-one conversation with was almost zero. Mm. And so not only did I have to to learn how to engage in conversation with them, but then I also had to have conversation about something meaningful. Right. If if grades were assigned today, what would mine be? And it had nothing to do with trying to coerce them into giving me something I didn't deserve. But to find out if it's below par. Yeah. What can I do? Not how can I beg and plead, but, but what can I do? to change that by the time the semester is over. And like I said, I had no idea what was happening at the time. And yeah. I'm sure my dad had some insight, but I don't think even he knew the full depth of the gift that he was giving me with that punishment. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I, I never got another D in Boys Glee Club. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. man. And, and that is so good. And so I'm just going it, to, it's so interesting that question that, you know, you, you were asking your teachers because that's, that's one of the things I've been taught and I teach all of my clients to ask their benefactors is where does our organization currently fit in your giving priorities yeah. and what would it take to move it up the list? Yeah. So that's so good. You and I, <clears throat> so Kent, I feel like I could interview you for hours just about all kinds of stuff and I'm, I'm loving this conversation, but let's, uh, Let's move right into some of your stories of, of visits you've been on. And I know you've got one that uh, is one that people should not repeat. It sounds like <laughs> one that uh, that didn't go too well. So could you tell us about that one? Yeah. So um, I was listening to a speaker some time ago and he said, he said, everybody's life is either a lesson or a warning. Hmm. He said, you want to be sure yours is the former, not the latter. And yeah, so, yeah. Um, um, and, but let me assure you, I have plenty of warnings firsthand, <laughs> just like the one I gave you about Boys Glee Club, right? Um, but but um, um, I, I want to tell you about this story, which actually, um, this is kind of a third person thing because this was a client that I was working with, major campaign. But I, I'm, I'm going to start off with the, um, 
the point that it illustrates because it just illustrates it so beautifully. And from, from what I've listened to you and read and watched, I know that you'll identify with the, uh, the, the pivot point in two definitions. So here's kind of the old school definition of success in fundraising. And I hate it. And that is success in fundraising is means getting the gift. Yep. And if you get the gift, it's success. If you don't get the gift, it's failure. Right. Uh, terrible definition. And right. that ends up in, you know, I'm going to say cheating everybody in the process out of the richest experiences that exist. And so our definition that we've come up with in place of that is we feel like that success in fundraising is this helping donors make well-informed decisions. Yeah. What a different focus. It's helping donors. It's not getting right. It's helping and it's helping them make the decision that's right for them for here, for now, for us. And that has little to do with me and my wants and preferences and goals and quotas and all that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so a lot of times I'll ask um, clients or, or prospects or fundraisers in your environment, are you allowed to take the time that the donor needs in order to make their most generous gift? And I will tell you, there are a lot of organizations where the answer to that question is no. And it makes me sad because like we said, it, it really disinherits the fundraising professional, the charitable organization, the giver of their best and, and richest, uh, gifts. So, yeah. um, so years ago I got this call from a client and I'm the capital campaign client. We're in the, we're in the quiet phase and you know how it is. You're at that point, you're seeking that small number of very large gifts, uh, people who identify with your mission and have a vision for the future. Right. Yeah. Um, ideally somebody who has contributed before, and uh, that was exactly the case. And um, I, I'm, I'm also going to protect the identity of the parties yeah, that yeah. are involved. But this was a multi-building campaign. And uh, so the, the executive director, the CEO, Richie, calls me on the phone. Here's what he said. Um, he said, hey, Ken, I need your advice. He said, how can I talk Howard Joseph into... And I'm not going to give you the words, but here's the, the core um, content of his question. How can I talk Howard into making the gift he doesn't want to make? Now, like I said, that's not the words that he said, but he, he said, how can I talk Howard into um, Howard Joseph into making the gift that I want him to make? And he keeps wanting to do this other thing. Right. And so I, I thought I heard him right. But I felt like he needed an opportunity to dig the hole a little bit deeper. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so I said, um, I said, Richie, so uh, give me a little bit more of the background. I said, I want to make sure that I have the full context before I give you my recommendation. And without going into all the specifics of the dialogue, here are the themes. Richie says, I thought, I want, I decided, and then he should he needs to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I yeah. wish your podcast listeners could see the smile on your face because you know exactly how backwards this is, right? Right. So after I listened to him for a while, I said, I, I know how to respond now. And I said, I'm not qualified to answer your question for you. I don't have any experience and I have no successful experience in talking donors into doing what they don't want to do. And I would encourage you to join me in that. Yeah. And he says, well, you know, what do you think I should do? And I said, well, I think you need to ask how he would like to be involved and listen to what he says in parentheses, close your mouth, open your ears, let, listen to the, his, his answers to your questions, and then ask for more clarity. And then give him what he wants. If it's at all within the reach of the organization to fulfill his desires, 
under the context of the mission that you're both working to carry out, do that. And, yeah. and anyhow, sadly, but what if he basically, what if he wants to do what he wants to do? What if he doesn't want to do what I want him to do? And I mean, when you hear me put it in words that are that simple, it sounds ridiculous, right? right. And it, it's always different words, but that's the message. Yeah. And you know, one thing like, it says, well, um, I'm just curious. What do you think this guy's portfolio is? You know, we're talking multiple millions of dollars. I said, do you think of somebody who has the capability of creating that kind of wealth that his thoughts, his opinions, his preferences might have any validity in an organization that he's funded before, in fact, funded to the extent that his name is already on a building on campus? Yeah. And the the obvious just never sunk in. Mm. And so here's the bad news of the story. Poor Howard ultimately, unfortunately, died without ever making the gift that he wanted, which would have been transformational for the charity and would have given an enduring honor to his lifetime partner, his wife. Hmm. That's what he wanted to do. But that's not in line for some reason with what the CEO wanted. And so Richie continues to be perplexed about why Howard doesn't want to make a fund, uh, doesn't want to fund Richie's ideas. And again, we look at that and we say, well, you know, how, how dense can you be? But the reality is all of us can be that dense when we get too close and when we substitute the wrong definition for yes. asking and listening. Yeah, that is so good. <clears throat> and it's, Man, it, it reminds me, so the, just what you were saying about we can all, you know, get our mind going down the wrong path and come up with our own ideas and that kind of thing. And th this is the importance of having, uh, of having a coach of some sort. Like I, I think anybody who's, who's doing any kind of fundraising, like no matter how successful you are or what your credentials are, having someone that can just every now and then listen to what you're thinking and telling you you might be going down the wrong path with this is extraordinarily valuable because without getting other people's perspectives, it's so easy to just to just get stuck in our own. This is what we think should happen. And and we're so committed to it and don't want to don't want to make a change. And then somebody yeah. winds up passing away and and nothing good happened. Yeah. Well, sometimes uh, somebody asks me, you know, what are your qualifications to be a fundraising consultant? And I tell you, there are days that I wonder the same thing. <laughs> but, but you know, here, here are a couple of things that, that um, I think we, like you said, whether coach or consultant, whatever you call us. Um, one of the things, one of the qualities I bring is um, I've already made all the mistakes. Yeah. So um, I know what not to do, right? But the other thing is, um, is distance. Mm. And one value of a consultant is close enough to be aware of the circumstances, but far enough to not be over-influenced by those circumstances, right? right? And so as fundraisers, when we're so close to it, I don't know about you, but I find myself afraid, what if they say no? Oh, yeah. And so I've got to do this thing that makes sense to me. And I'm convinced that it will make sense to them, too, also by not ever having talked with them about it. But but I've made up my mind for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. and I'm, I'm afraid that if I don't do this thing, that the the result will be that they won't give. And that's one of the places where I love to come alongside. <clears throat> and uh, in, in fact, I don't think you and I have talked about this. My um, my template for a donor call um, it breaks down into to two well well three sections. Yeah, the first section is one third of the time. So if we've got an hour, um, we've got one third of the time to 
talk about whatever our big ask is for that day. And then we have basically one minute to make our big ask that falls into context with what the conversation has been. But then we have two thirds of the time. So another, let's call it 39 minutes where we can engage in conversation around the donor's response to the ask that falls on the heels of our 20 minute dialogue and presentation. Yeah. And so he says, well, you know, why one third? Well, I don't know about you, but here's what I find. If I don't have a plan like that, we got 59 minutes to <laughs> aim, aimlessly wander through the wilderness. And then, oh, our time's about gone. So I'm going to quick ask a question, make an ask that has no chance of being processed. And or it's, you know, we just don't have enough time. So can we meet again? Right. Right. And so uh, but here's what I found. If if we have prepared a purposeful question hmm. and if we discipline ourselves with whoever our asking part team partner is, that <clears throat> this is about when that question is going to be asked. We know who's going to ask it, what the question is. Then what it does, it it um, allows it doesn't just force it allows dialogue meaningful dialogue around that so that the the donor has an opportunity to say, well, you know, you mentioned this thing, tell me a little bit more. And we can tell them more about what they want to know rather than more about what we want them to know. Right. Right. Um, Well, if I did that, what would happen? Uh, What would it look like when you'll be able to answer all those things? And, uh, and here's the other thing. um, And I I picked up on a, a similar experience from you and one of your podcasts. But, but the other thing I like to do is that we are finished with five minutes left so that we have time for, for what I call the elevator talk. And what that is, the meeting's over. We've thanked them. We've, we've planned out our next steps. We, we're up on our feet and we walk out the door of the conference room. We're standing at the elevator and the conversation that takes place while we wait for the elevator car to arrive oftentimes is the most crucial. It's spontaneous and you, uh, you couldn't have created it, hmm. but inevitably it will point out something that becomes really rich leverage for the future. But if we go one minute late, everybody's scurrying out the other direction and we don't have time for the serendipity. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That the, uh, the rushed ask at the, the last minute yeah. is, is so uncomfortable. I, I did it so many times when I was first getting started and, uh, it, it's just so awkward for everyone involved and you and me nobody, both. Yeah. <laughs> nobody enjoys it. So yeah, that, that's all great in, information, Kent. And, uh, what about, so you've got a story you told me you've, you've got a, a, a moving experience mm. for you and the benefactor. Could you tell us about that one? Yeah. And there are so many layers to this and I'm just only going to mm. touch the surface, but it is just so rich. Um, and again, you know, out, out of respect for the privacy, um, these individuals, if they were living, I'm confident they would give me uh, enthusiastic permission to use their names, yeah. but, but they're not. And um, I don't, but I'm just going to call them Robert and Sean. Um, and I had known Robert and Shar for a number of years, had an opportunity actually to work with each of them. And they were much older than me. If you can picture that, um, there, there actually are people that are older than me. Um, but um, uh, they had, they had since moved from uh, from the community where I worked, uh, they'd moved someplace else, retired. But when they moved, they kept their home and you um, were using it as a rental property. And they were, uh, you know, they were still supportive of the university, but they weren't close. And these were not people of means. I mean, ordinary people uh, uh, like, like people like you and me, um, yeah. <clears throat> Anyhow, I got a call one day from, from Robert, and he was very polite and gentle. And, and uh, basically, the reason he called was 
the rental house, uh, their, their tenant had moved out and he wondered if I could help him find, uh, find a replacement tenant. And what followed, actually, it was, it really wasn't as thoughtful as it was just kind of impulse. And anyhow, my impulses for um, conversation had begun to frame up around a whole bunch of P's. And so I tell people to listen for the P's. And here are some of the P's in conversation. If, if we ask the right kinds of questions and if we listen, listen carefully, um, people are going to tell us about their possessions, their problems, their possibilities, their passions, their priorities, their people, and their philanthropy, right? That last one is a P, but it just sounds like an F, right? Yeah, it's a tricky one. So, I mean, all, all, these, all these P's. And so as, I, as I'm being asked about, can I help them find a tenant, I, I began to think about the P's. This sounds like a problem. And so I just asked him, I said, um, I said, how important is it for you to remain in the landlord business? And well, blah, blah, blah. You know, this is our kind of our, um, this, this is part of our retirement income. Yeah. And so I'm listening and I told you I had a background in finance, right? Yeah. And for whatever reason, even though I was now in philanthropy, I'm, I'm listening to background in, in finance and a problem. And I thought, I wonder if something like a charitable gift annuity might be a great alternate for being a landlord. Hmm. And so as we listened a little bit, I, um, I asked the question, if there was a way that this might be able to be converted into a lifetime income, is that something that you'd all, at all be interested in? I said, you know, I don't know the details enough to give you any numbers or anything. But I said, with your permission, I'd be happy to look into it. Yeah. And boy, all of a sudden, who cares about tenants, man? If I can get out of the tenant business. Yeah. And so, um, so uh, fast forward, sure enough, we were able to come up with a, a, a two-life charitable uh, um annuity that would be funded by the gift of this real estate. And in addition to them, actually, I don't even know if it diminished their, their annual income at all. Yeah. But in addition to that, of course, they got an initial uh, charitable gift element from the annuity. And for the, um, you know, for, for, for the majority of their remaining lives, an annual uh, deduction as well. Yeah. So anyhow, we were able to pull out all that together and to finalize it, they were going to be back in town. And so the meeting uh, revolves around a meeting in my office. Okay. Now I'm vice president of development and this older couple comes in. The purpose is for them to, uh, to put their signature on the charitable gift uh, annuity agreement. Right. And so, um, we, we reviewed the details, which we had talked about before, and answered any questions that they, they had. And uh, they wrote their name down. And, and again, we had time. We'd done the formal stuff. And now we kick back and we relax. Mm-hmm. And these two precious people said, Kent, we just want to thank you so much for making this possible. They said the amount of the initial gift far exceeds anything that we ever thought that we could give to an institution that means so much to us. Thank you for making it possible. I mean, I was just there to facilitate, right? I mean, I didn't do anything for them, but they treated me like I'd given them a gift. And in a sense, I had given them a gift, but they said, thank you. And I want to tell you that between the three of us, there was not a dry eye in the room because we sat there together and together we wept in celebration and in Thanksgiving. But then here's the clincher. So the, um, the, the campaign was to build a chapel fine arts center. And 
um, in this in, in the main auditorium in this chapel. It had individual seats, and we had put together this this program of sponsoring seats. It was called Seat of Honor. You know, uh, take your seats. And um, if I remember right, and I think this is correct, the um, uh, the, the price tag to sponsor a seat was three hundred dollars. And so Robert is sitting there with me and, and his wife, Char, and he said, I'm wondering if we could, um, if, if we could also take a part of that gift and could, could you put Char's name on one of the seats in the auditorium? And I said, Robert, instead of that, how about we just put, her name on one and yours on one, and then four more for each of your kids. How would that feel? Mm-hmm. And I mean, it was just for him, it was over the top. And wow. it was one of those things that would be just a very natural expression of appreciation. And again, yeah. they wept in gratitude and, and we wept together. Um, they never dreamed that they would have made a gift. And I will tell you in the scope of the campaign, it might have been at the bottom of the major gift level, maybe the top of the general gift level. But to them, this was uh, perhaps the largest single gift they'd ever made. And it was so meaningful to them through the rest of their lives. And I was so thankful to be able to listen, to listen beyond what they came with us. And so their possession was a problem and it opened up a possibility that spoke to their priorities, nurtured their passion, honored their people and represented itself in philanthropy. What a beautiful combination. Wow. That is so awesome. That is so cool. There's, yeah, I mean, there, there's so many things to, to say here. And the, the first thing that comes to my mind is, I'm sure you've experienced this before with some of your clients or maybe in your own career, but sometimes people worry about approaching friends of theirs to give to an organization mm-hmm. that they, they work for, you know, like, well, I, I, I can't go to my friends. I, I don't want to, you know, burden them or something like that. And it's like, no, no, no. Like when we're, when we are there to serve them, and again, we're, we're not trying to get them to do what we want them to do, but, but when we help facilitate what they want to do, it can tur- it's not just, is it okay if I approach my friends? It's, you should approach your friends um, because it can lead to just incredibly meaningful, meaningful things like this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think um, one, one of the, probably one of the biggest things that I do with uh, clients or, or students is to equip them to not say no for others. Yes. Yes. And so when we say, when I say, you know, uh, Kevin and I are friends, but I'm not going to tell them about this project that I'm working on that I think is so great that people ought to give millions, tens of millions or hundreds of millions yeah. of dollars to, then I've effectively said, Kevin, you don't deserve to be involved in something that I think would be fantastic for everybody else, but not for you. Well, how persuasive is that? Um, But at the same time, one of the things that I realize is that um, I'll say this from my perspective, friendship, true friendship is a precious possession. Hmm. Maybe one of the most precious commodities in the world is a real friend. And so here's what, what I think ultimately you're saying is, you know, I don't want to, bruise that friendship or offend that friendship. And so um, in this whole thing, how do we get from here to there is one of the things that I wrote about in my first book, asking about asking. And that is, so instead of deciding for you, I'm going to ask. So I'm saying, Hey, Kevin, I'm involved right now with a campaign that is for a school for children with autism and their families. And I mean, they are doing some of the most impressive work over there. In fact, the work is so specialized that many public schools say, you're more equipped to handle this than we are. 
Um, we're not going to compete with you. We're, in fact, what we're going to do is fund you. If, if you'll meet the needs of students that we're not equipped to meet, um, we'll underwrite the cost of their education. So anyhow, it's really cool. Um, yeah. I'm curious, uh, if I could arrange it just for a, a, a walkthrough, uh, take a look at the facility, see the program, meet some of the leaders, would you be receptive to an introduction? I would love that, Kent. And I'm gonna, and guys. I'm, I'm, I'm not, ma- I'm not making this up. What I'm about to say is true, and it illustrates why it's important to do what Kent is saying. It just so happens that my wife works with little kids with autism doing. Oh, is that right? Oh, wow. So we, we would love to know more about it. And so, see, I didn't know that. And right. how unkind would it be? for me to prevent you from walking through that door. And so let me ask you in, in that dialogue, you said, Kevin, how much money did I ask you for? None. What was the most offensive part of my question? I, uh, there was nothing offensive. Yeah. And so, but let's just say, and, and we're going to play with this. Let's yeah, just yeah. say that you hate children. <laughs> you hate autism and you hate people that try to serve children with autism. Yeah. <laughs> and so how, how would you respond if that was your framework? And I asked the same thing. What would you say? I would say I, I do not want to be introduced to that person. Yeah, th- th- this isn't a thing for me. And so yeah. now I know. Yeah. And so being continued to be playful for a minute here, here's, here's why I respond. You know, I, I can accept that. So I'm curious, do you know anybody who does have a heart that maybe I should be speaking to? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I don't. I don't <laughs> no, but here's, here's the thing that, that even, you know, you're talking to one of your friends. They say, yeah, this isn't a thing for me. Um, I get that. And so sometimes here's what it really sounds like. Kevin, you know, as, as long as we've known each other, I mean, I feel like I've known you all year. 2021, but as long as we've known each other, would, would it be out of place for me to, um, to just share something with you that I'm involved with that, that really means a lot to me? Yeah, and I'd love that. So, I mean, if it is, you're going to say, you know, Kent, um, I care about schools and I care about autism and children and students and parents, but we're so close for whatever reason, it would just kind of feel weird to me. Um, yeah. But is there somebody else you could bring into the equation? Right. Oh man, I'd be glad to. So, um, so anyhow, that, that whole thing about permission, I think is how we get away from telling and ordering people or answering for them, assuming and guessing, get away from that. And into, here's what I care about. Do you care about it? Um, are we too close? If yes, there's somebody else. Or Kevin says, you know what? Uh, We're so close that it'd feel weird if it was anybody, but you let's, uh, when can we go over there? Right. Yeah. 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 That's so good. And yeah, I really need to get my hands on a, a copy of your book asking about asking because I feel like it's uh, I've, 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 <laughs> you and I, I think, went to went to fundraising school together uh, many years apart because I think we, <laughs> we a lot of the same uh, the same sentiments and, and strategies. And yeah, I, I love asking for permission to do whatever the next thing is because yeah we it, it just makes it so much better when you approach it from that lens rather than hey you're rich want to come talk to me about this uh <laughs> this place you could give some money to <laughs> i know i know it's it, in fact sometime maybe on a future podcast i think it'd be fun for us to just talk about language and the language that we use both as fundraisers and just in ordinary life, people yeah. use the weirdest language. And I'll just give you one that I, I find <laughs> someplace between fascinating, offensive, and humorous. But, <laughs> but that is, we're involved in a conversation. And at some point, the other person says, well, can I be honest with you? And I think, yeah. <laughs> well, why would you start that now? You know, you've never been honest before. <laughs> Do you need permission to be honest? <laughs> but yeah, it's. <laughs> yeah, that that is one of those things that people don't realize. You know, when you say that or like, look, I'm going to be honest with you right now. It's like, 
<laughs> well, you, I didn't think yeah. you weren't, to be honest, before, yeah. but. But since you are, let me, please let me know when it stops, too, by the way. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you go back to your usual lion lips. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Man, so we could, uh, there's a lot of things we, we could talk about, but we got a, we got a few more minutes here. Are there any, any other stories that come to mind, Kent, that you'd like to share? Oh my, well, I'll tell you, um, I'll tell you a quick one. And this happened in a, um, in a farmhouse in America's heartland. Hmm. And, um, I, this is a bit of a stereotype, but so the stereotypical, this was an older couple. Their, their kids were all gone from home. They were a traditional conservative farm family. I felt very welcome because when I arrived, um, they met me out at the, the picket fence and we walked in through the side door. And when you get to go in through the side door, not the front door, it's a big deal, right? Oh, yeah. But um, this was one of those deals where it was it wasn't exactly a feasibility interview, but it was kind of along those lines. I wasn't there to make an ask, but I was there to talk about asking for a gift. Maybe that's where the title came from. Ask about asking. Yeah, yeah. Um, But anyhow, here's one of the things that I observed. Every question that I ask them about their peas their people, their property, their possessions, their priorities, their problems, their philanthropy. Every question that I asked them, he answered. And he answered in such a way as if that was the only answer in the room. Hmm. And she is sitting politely, silently. And to me, it felt like that to him, it could have been just the same if she weren't in the room, but she was in the room and they had, they had been long married to each other. And there was something in me. I don't know if this was smart or just a little bit bold, but I thought this, this really shouldn't be left unchallenged. And so the next question I asked them, and he responded definitively. And I just turned to her and I said, well, Mrs., what do you think? And she, here's what she said. She said, well, I think it'll be just like he says, as long as he's here. And then it'll be different. <laughs> and in one sentence, she addressed mortality rate lifespan, independence. And she illustrated for me the reality that Kevin, you and I know, and that is that in most families, the last decisions about giving are not going to be made by him. They're going to be made by her. And that if we ignore her during his lifetime, she's likely to ignore us after his lifetime. Yeah. And I don't suggest that at all as any kind of manipulation, but an awareness. And um, in our, in our fundraising, do we engage both parties in a household and where appropriate, do we engage in the next generation? Yeah. And um, to the extent that we do, I say, hooray, good for us. Stand up and applaud. Uh, But where we don't, at the very best, or excuse me, at the very least, it's missed opportunity. Right. And at the worst, it's reinforcing bad ideas. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's so true. And yeah, good for you for uh, asking that question of her. And as we're kind of winding down here, (laughs) so your first book was Asking About Asking. Yes. You've written at least one other book, right? Conversational fundraising is that it? Well, no, that's that's actually the subtitle of the first book is mastering okay. the art of conversational fundraising. Um, I've I am a uh, I've I'm one of twenty five authors on another book that's called Whoa. the the uh, non 
profit consulting playbook. Okay. And actually there's some really good stuff in there. And, and, um, if, if you or any of your colleagues ever have any interest in this whole idea of uh, nonprofit consulting, I want to tell you, um, actually I asked them to retitle the book. They said it was, it was, um, written by 25 leaders in the field. I told them they should have said it's written by 25 leaders in the field and Kent. Um, but, <laughs> but there, there's some really good stuff in there. And, um, but it, that's a pretty narrow audience. Um, mm. my, my last book is titled the intentional board, mm. why your board doesn't work and how to fix it. Um, yeah. and, uh, actually all three of these books are published by charity channel press and you can find them online. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, for, you know, if, if you are a member of a board, if you aspire someday to serve on a board, or if you serve or serve with a board, either as a CEO or chief development officer or whatever, um, there are some really good tools in the intentional board that, um, uh, that can help bring uh, significance and sustainability to an organization that you love. Yeah, that's great. And what, what's your website? Where, where can people find you? Uh, one is kentstroman.com. And of course, I'm on LinkedIn and, and, and Facebook, uh, but uh, lots of places to connect. Yeah, that's awesome. So yeah, I'll put links to the website, to Kent's website um, in the comment or I guess in the description of this episode. And uh, yeah, this was this was a great conversation, Kent. Thanks so much for sharing. And we'll definitely have you on the podcast in the future to share some more stories. Well, thanks, Kevin. I'd love to do that. And, and uh, best, best wishes. That was Kent Stroman. I hope you found this conversation to be valuable. If this episode has inspired you to go schedule more visits or go ask for a gift, please go ahead and leave a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It helps tremendously in getting the word out about the show. Also, if you want to get in touch with me, Kevin Fitzpatrick, you can go to my website, onevisitaway.com, or connect with me on LinkedIn. Now, I hope this episode has inspired you to schedule more visits. After all, you're just one visit away from helping someone give a gift so meaningful that they'll be thanking you for presenting them with the opportunity.